Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. One of the things that makes Where We Live so special is our proximity to Long Island Sound. This estuary and its 600 miles of coastline is home to nearly 200 fish species, more than a thousand invertebrates, and dozens of migratory birds. This is according to Audubon, Connecticut. And this morning, we're kicking off Naughty Week here at Connecticut Public, where we're going to spend a week to celebrate all things nautical. And here on Where We Live, we're focused on this unique ecosystem. Stay tuned for deep dives on terrapin turtles, sturgeon, jellies and oysters just off our coast. And today, we're diving for coral. They got a lot of great colonies. Wow, good score. Tropical coral populations are on a steep and troubling decline. Coral in the Florida Keys is experiencing a mass bleaching event due to hot tub level water temperatures. Here in Connecticut, researchers hope one native species of coral can help its more vulnerable relatives. Coming up, we'll hear from researchers with the Temperate Coral Research Group. But first, here to discuss how climate change is showing up in Long Island Sound is Bill Lucy, who's a soundkeeper with Save the Sound. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us this morning. Pleasure to be here. And have you observed any changes to the shoreline where we live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Bill, a lot of buildup to this to this first question here. I want to ask you the big picture and long term. What are your concerns for Long Island Sound when we're talking about climate change? Um, well, I'd have to say the primary concern, obviously, is water temperature. If you look at the data um, over the last few decades, there is a steady, small rise. I was looking at a report by some colleagues at Project O, and they're looking at about 0.45 degrees Celsius over the last 10 years. So, you know, looking at eight tenths of a degree Fahrenheit for those who like to think in Fahrenheit. So each year on average, we're creeping up. And, and the, the reason that worries me so much, just sticking with the physical aspect of it, is that Long Island Sounds had a history of hypoxia. And back in 1994, when it peaked, hypoxia is an area where there's zero oxygen. So we had 212 square miles of hypoxic conditions back in 1994. Um and that's when, if you remember the stories, lobsters were dying in the pound and there was bunker kills every day. It was terrible. Um, <clears throat> so there was a big action that happened called the Long Island Sound Nitrogen Action Plan to try and reduce the nutrients. And starting about 17, 18 years ago, they put limits on all the wastewater treatment plants because they all have clean water permits under the law and how much they're allowed to uh, discharge. And over the course of the past 17, 18 years, we've really seen an effect. So 
2022, the hypoxic area was down to 53 square miles. So you remember back in 2012 or 1994 with 212, um, and that lasted for about 70 days. Um, it's it's decreased quite a bit. Now there's fluctuations, and these are averages. But if you look at just the data from when they initiated the nitrogen action plan till now, there is a significant drop. Now, the problem is we're making great gains on our effluent discharge, but we have increase in population, non-point source runoff, and things are getting warmer. So warm water holds less oxygen. So we, we might start seeing some increases in hypoxia unless we get a handle on our, our climate activities. So a lot of things going on, really, and, and we see so many headlines related to this recently. We also spoke with Justin Davis with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's Marine Fisheries Division late last week, who also spoke about unpredictability in the sound. Let's take a quick listen. One thing that we've seen with what's going on with climate in our region, and boy, this summer has been a great example of it, is that the weather has just gotten more volatile and more unpredictable, right? So if you go out in Long Island Sound right now, the water is chocolate brown. We've had a huge influx of fresh water because of a really unseasonable flood in the Connecticut River. There's a ton of suspended sediment in the water. I've heard from fishermen that it has driven fish out of areas where they would normally be at this time of year, which has impacted fishing activity. So things like this where climate is producing just greater volatility in the environment, leading to unpredictability and sort of where important fish species might be over time, uh, might create impacts in the nearshore environment with tons of sediment coming in from big rainfalls, big rainfalls washing lots of nutrients into the water off the surface of the land that could cause algal blooms that leads to you know, the low oxygen hypoxia conditions you talk about. So I think that's certainly one thing we're keeping an eye on and acknowledging is that just the environment's getting less predictable not that it's ever been really predictable to begin with, but it's getting even more uh, unpredictable going forward. So I'm hearing some echoing there um, with hypoxia, Bill. What's your response with what Justin has to say, especially when we're thinking about the impact on the local ecosystem here? Yeah, well, stochastic events, you know, these these unforeseen events create things like uh, out-of-sync algal blooms. Um, we also see... You know, with sewage discharges and other nutrient sources, uh, algal blooms happening. And you know, one of the long-term trends of that is that we're losing, well, we're seeing a shift of our basic zooplankton community. So back in the 50s, there was a couple species of copepod that were big and juicy, really tasty to eat. And as uh, hypoxia became more of a problem, as populations increased, um, you had a loss of those species. Um, two medium-sized species took their place, but now we're seeing a decline in those and a smaller species is showing up. And the reason that's important is that copepods are the link between the sunlight and plankton, which takes that sun energy and the nutrients and makes it into salad, let's say. Then the zooplankton eats that and the zooplankton in turn feeds all the larval fish and small forage fish species. So if a fish has evolved to eat a certain species at a certain time, and that starts to change, it can have effects on both the larval species and, and really on forage fish, which support the whole food chain. 
Um, and I was really surprised most of my time was spent in Alaska and we get our spring blooms in April, May, but there are blooms that'll happen in, in January in Long Island Sound. And so the bloom timings can really change what's going on with the copepod. They'll, they'll smother some of the silica, other things that need, uh, diatoms need to, to take up, which feed these copepods and it's stuff you just don't see. So Justin's absolutely right. We, there's small changes that we can't see all of a sudden uh, reflect themselves in how'd you do fishing today or how'd you do this season versus last season. It's it's the great unknown. Right. And those small changes seem to lead to bigger changes, you know, as we're having this conversation today. And like we just heard from Justin Davis with Deep's uh, Fisheries Division, he also spoke to regulatory delays where it concerned changes to fish populations due to climate change. Let's take another listen. A sort of interesting challenge we've had, too, with fish species that used to live down south moving up here into Long Island Sound is that our regulatory structures, sort of the rulemaking process has not been as quick to catch up to what's happening out there in the environment. One of our missions is about sort of setting the rules around fishing, how many fish people can take out of Long Island Sound. We don't get to make those decisions in-house unilaterally ourselves in Connecticut. We do it through what's called the interstate fisheries management process. It's a complicated way of saying that we have to make those decisions in cooperation with all the other Atlantic coastal states because those fish that are really valuable in Long Island Sound, a lot of them move up and down the coast. And so we all have to work together on the coast to set the fishing rules. Problem is that because these fish historically live down south, most of the what we call the quota or sort of the annual allowable take was held by southern states. As those fish have moved up here, the management structure hasn't responded as quickly. So even though the fish have become really abundant here in Long Island Sound, our fishing community hasn't been able to take full advantage because we just don't have the access we probably should with the abundance of the fish there. So sounds like there's so many moving parts to to fishing here, Bill. You're also involved in a lot of regulatory and legislative conversations. You know, what's your perspective on this? Has has change been happening? You know, what's going on there? Yeah, well, <clears throat> Justin is absolutely correct. The fishermen have been taking the brunt of climate change um, with no regulation, right? The lobster fishery has crashed. The winter flounder have really gone downhill. So those opportunities aren't there anymore. The opportunities that are showing up, as Justin said, are regulated farther south. So let's take black sea bass. There's a lot of black sea bass. Any of the fishermen out there, whether they're sport anglers or commercial, are going to have seen this dramatic rise in black sea bass um, over their careers. And so there's an opportunity to replace some of the lost income for these harvesters but the, as, as Justin mentioned, the regulations don't keep up. The climate change happens. Those opportunities are lost. So we really need, and I know some of the Connecticut delegation has been trying to push this along. We need to create more opportunities for our local fleet. And as we continue to have these conversations, and I, I don't foresee us stopping really anytime soon, do you have any bigger picture thoughts on how regulation can better keep up with climate change? I don't know. That's a really, that's a, you don't want to do things too fast. You have to be careful about using um, legislative, legislative policy to manage natural resources, but sometimes that's a way to make things move more quickly. 
Um, we just need to be actively engaged as a state. And I think we have really good fisheries leadership in the state of Connecticut right now. Um, and we just need to keep pushing for uh, more equitable uh, quota shares. And so you mentioned uh, sea salad earlier. We know Save the Sound is also working on eelgrass restoration in the Sound. Can you tell us what eelgrass is and the important role that it plays in this ecosystem? Sure. Eelgrass is one of the unsung heroes of the near coastal areas. It's a submerged aquatic vegetation. We call them SAVs. Um, used to be very abundant in Long Island Sound. Um, it's a great place for larval fish and crabs and all kinds of uh, eggs and things to settle. There's a symbiotic relationship with shellfish, especially scallops and other bivalves. Um, which fertilizes seagrass and the seagrass catches all the nectar, all the good stuff for those clams to filter. But back in the 30s, there was a large die off from a wasting disease. Um, and it wasn't until the 50s there was a resurgence. Uh, but in the 60s, it started to drop off. We had a lot of sewage inputs, rising population. And right now we're to the point where eelgrass is pretty much restricted to the eastern sound. So we've been looking at trying different ways to go to areas that may not have seeds. The, the founding population or nearby populations are they're too far away to restore an area. So if the water quality is has gotten um, to a point where maybe we could try eelgrass again, um, it needs a helping hand. So what we've been doing is collecting seeds, gluing them on clams and dropping them overboard and seeing how they grow and we're shooting about 50 percent it's worked in some areas hasn't worked in others uh eelgrass rest there's some really good researchers um in the sound that are focused on this right now and so you know we've been talking a lot about about movement and and there are some bright spots of research that's happening off our coast with the northern star coral uh, another hero i believe and we only got about 2 minutes left here but i would love to hear about your hopes as far as the role of long island sound uh, can play in climate resilience yeah well um just taking eelgrass it's uh, one of the ecosystem services as it sequesters carbon and I know Stony Brook, Brad Peterson at Stony Brook University has been working on how quickly they can um, catch and store carbon. Um, and UConn, uh, Dr. Jamie Baudry has been looking at how iron can mitigate some uh, the bad hydrogen sulfide that comes out of our, our nasty sediments that have too many nutrients to spur growth. And then Cornell Cooperative Extension has been really piloting several different techniques to, to bring it back. So I think you know, we're in an area that if we can, as a region and, 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 a, and a couple of states working on this, come up with some viable restoration strategies that can be exported to other parts, um, that can help everybody because eelgrass is an issue um, globally and um, yeah we also had the long island sound study which has finally been funded to uh its fullest extent um and we have a lot of good researchers along the sound and we have a lot of people trying to put that research into action through policy and restoration practices so you know things are 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 tough right now but i, I think we have the tools to really turn it around and um set things on a, on a healthy path. Well, that sounds like a plan. And here's three huzzahs for, for the eelgrass. Long Island soundkeeper Bill Lucy, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
For sure. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, we hear from researchers focused on one species of Connecticut coral and about their hopes for helping its tropical relatives that are more threatened by warming waters. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. There's a coalition of scientists along Long Island Sound and Narragansett Bay who are focused on the native species of northern star coral, or Astrangia poculata. The temperate coral research group hopes their research could lend a hand, or tentacle, to tropical species more threatened by warming. Joining us now is Sean Grace. He's a marine ecologist and biology professor at Southern Connecticut State University, and he also co-directs Southern's Worth Center for Coastal and Marine Studies. Thank you so much, Sean, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Good morning. And do you have a passion for coral? Do you Are you a fan of coral? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Sean, can you explain what makes northern star coral such a prime candidate for study, particularly when we're talking about climate change and besides the fact that it has a really cool name? Oh, I love its name. Well, I think first because it has a a really large geographic range and we are at its northern limit right now. So it's southern New England's only sclerectinian coral. And by southern New England, I mean Massachusetts, Rhode Island, you know, all the way through probably northern or uh, parts of North Carolina. Um, And then there are other corals that kind of mix in after that. So this is truly New England's only coral. And um, I I like it because it's got some unique characteristics that can give us some insight into potentially, you know, what might be happening with corals around the world. So it has a unique symbiosis which is a very dynamic symbiosis, meaning, um, you know, corals get their color essentially from uh, symbiosis with an algae or zooxanthellae that lives within them. And that uh, zooxanthellae photosynthesize and it provides the coral some, some food basically, 
um, and the coral provides the zooxanthellae a home. So, and the coral that lives locally, Estrangia, is, is strange in that if you look at that symbiosis, it's, it's not always as colorful as it could be. It's not always white or where it doesn't have the zooxanthellae. So it's, it's just very unique and it's very different from most corals around the world. I just want to let our listeners know that you can find images of Northern Star Coral on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And Sean, you mentioned coral around the world. And to be honest, when I think coral, I don't think about New England. Uh, can you talk to us about whether or not we um, might call bleaching? You know, that's something that we've been seeing in the headlines recently. Can you walk us through how we would define that and how that's a little different here in temperate waters? Yeah, sure. Well, we if, we if we bring ourselves to a tropical reef, I think one of the striking images that we see are just how colorful corals are, right? And they're beautiful, right? So they get that color again from that zooxanthellae that lives within their tissues. So what bleaching is, is basically a whitening of the coral. And that results from a loss of that zooxanthellae or a decrease in the zooxanthellae's photosynthetic pigment. So what we're seeing in the tropics, you know, specifically the summer and, and in the past too, but it's, it's really happening now, is uh, a lot of bleaching events taking place. And it's a little different when we look at Estrangia because Estrangia can lose its ozenthelae and gain ozenthelae at different times during the year. Um, and it does just fine. So it, it doesn't seem to be as affected by, you know, having no ozenthelae like the tropical corals do. And you've also been diving off the coast of New England for years. Um, what sort of yes. habitat changes have you observed? Oh, geez. In the last 35 years, um, just like local habitat changes, uh, the kelp, kelp populations used to dominate the subtitle from the low intertidal down to maybe seven, eight meters depth. And the kelp is now gone. We don't really find kelp. We find small remnants of their populations. But, but nothing like it used to be. Um, and it's been replaced with this um, kind of like turf-like algae. And, and we call it turf because it's more like replacing the tree with, with a bunch of bushes, right? So, um, so they're closer to the substrate and they trap a lot of sediment and they can smother organisms that live on those sediments, including birds. So we've seen that change in take place over the last 15 years. And all of this, of course, impacts corals' habitat as well. Have you seen any changes specific to the northern star coral? Well, just recently, I think this past winter, the water temperatures didn't get to the point where the coral would experience what it normally does in the winter, which is a phenomenon known as quiescence or dormancy. So these corals actually go dormant in the winter. So when temperatures get below around four degrees Celsius, they kind of pull in their tentacles, they puff out like their oral plates, and they just kind of remain dormant until things warm up in the spring. And then they, you know, their tentacles come back out and they start feeding again. And this winter in January, February, and March, we never really hit the temperatures that initiate quiescence in the coral. And, you know, we observe the corals being open and feeding all three months. And we brought some in and actually, you know, just to check what they were feeding on. And yeah, they were actively feeding throughout the entire winter, which for me, this is the first winter that I've never 
that have experienced this. Usually the corals go dormant. And this is so special to this coast. And I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but what inspired you to study the Northern Star Coral specifically? <laughs> well, I used to do studies in the tropics and I was looking at for PhD programs. And I knew that um, Dr. Michael Pilsen, who was at URI's Graduate School of Oceanography, had um, multiple students studying this coral. And, but this was like, maybe 10 years before I went to URI to, to do my graduate work. And, um, you know, I had worked for a coral biologist for years and I mentioned, I think I'm going to go to Rhode Island. And it was funny. Initially they were like, you might find five or six corals here and there. You know, you might see a few, but you're not going to, you maybe you're not going to have enough to actually do a whole study on. And it took me a little while, you know, maybe one or two dives until I actually realized that I was surrounded by, hundreds of thousands of colonies of corals and uh, there was plenty to do research on so for me i'm i'm local i grew up in massachusetts and i spent a lot of time on the beaches in Rhode island so it was just a very natural progression of yeah let's study what's in my backyard well i love that too because you went from from tropics to the new england coast not the most you know straightforward transition yeah, definitely not definitely not i've heard about it for years why would you go to rhode island to study corals well we're having a very important conversation because of that so i want to thank you for doing that and perfect transition because joining us now are two rhode island based members of the temperate coral research group we have cody sharp who's associate professor of biology marine biology and environmental science at roger williams university and amy april who's an associate scientist at woods hole oceanographic institution thank you so much cody and amy for joining us this morning thanks for having us Thanks for having us. And Amy, I want to start with you. You know, you studied coral in tropical and temperate settings. What are your concerns, especially hearing about the recent bleaching in the Florida Keys? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. It, it's really catastrophic what's happening now in Florida. And so I'm, I'm deeply concerned as well as researchers around the world. We just haven't seen the scale of, of bleaching and mortality um, in the Caribbean ever. And um, the water temperatures are basically just getting so warm that they're causing, as Sean described, that disassociation between algae and the coral. And then in some cases, the water is so warm that we're not even seeing bleaching, that there's just mortality of the coral itself are, are dying. And one of the reasons that this is so troubling for a coral and for, for sorry, Florida in particular, is because uh, they've just spent the last of seven or eight years experiencing an unprecedented disease event. Um, so they lost about 50 million coral colonies just from the stony coral tissue loss disease. You know, that was starting to dissipate. They were just starting to get their handle hands on some, some restoration activities in that area. And now we're seeing most many of the corals dying there now because of the warming. Well, and honestly, in preparation for this conversation, when I saw the news, you know, my heart dropped because I had seen that you know, they were sort of com coming back in numbers and, and just suddenly they're all bleached. It's, it's, as you said, it's very troubling. And I want to ask, too, you know, how would you describe the links between the northern star coral and its tropical relatives that we're talking about now? Astrangia is the incredibly resilient coral. 
that I think tropical corals are going to be striving to become. Um, so there, there's clear links. Um, Astrangia, like the tropical corals, um, also builds a calcium carbonate skeleton. It builds habitat for, for other organisms. Um, both Astrangia and the tropical corals um, host a variety of, of symbionts, so organisms that are that are smaller that live within their tissues. So the zooxanthellae that um, Sean described, they can live with or without them. So they figured out, hey, sometimes I need these, and sometimes I'll just feed. Um, and we're still not quite sure, you know, how they make that decision. Um, Astrangia, um, as well as tropical corals, also have bacteria and bacterial relatives that live within their tissues and on their surface. And that helps them with nutrient cycling as well as immunity. Um, and, um, and, and they're both, they're all beautiful <laughs> too. I think that's um, inspiring as well. Even when I look at an astrangia in the water, it's, um, it's just inspiring to see this, this organism that has, um, been able to do so much with um, how it how it lives and how it has um, evolved symbiosis to to thrive in these environments. Well, I love seeing the photos of them and and just very inspired that they can do so much. And on top of that, too, you know, Cody, what would you add about the connections to tropical coral here, and and what are your hopes for studying northern star coral? Yes, I I think that. Um, really, the the hope lies in the fact that there are so many similarities between Astrangia and our tropical corals, as Amy mentioned, um, and then also those really unique characteristics that that Sean highlighted. So, Astrangia hosts a diverse uh, microbiome on its surface and inside of its tissues, um, and it's a it's a fairly complex microbiome but it's actually also very similar to the microbiomes that we see in tropical corals. We know that microbiomes are very important for the health of their animal hosts. Um, and the work that we've been doing is um, trying to understand how uh, Astrangia microbiomes contribute to the health of their hosts, how they respond to these environmental fluctuations and how they might be involved in responding to the extreme temperatures of our hot summers as well as our cold winters here in, in New England. You know, we joke that Estrangia is hardy like a New Englander. It can handle these really uh, strong seasonal fluctuations. And so um, really one of our main focuses with Estrangia is sort of um, focusing in on that unique characteristic um, of being able to handle these uh, large thermal changes and trying to understand the mechanisms by which they can accomplish that. And you mentioned the microbiome. Can you tell us what exactly that makeup is for a coral? Um, because I, when I think microbiome, I'm thinking guts, um, my own gut, actually. <laughs> sure, and that's a, that's a really great parallel uh, to make, actually. So we know that um, we've seen a lot in the news um, about gut microbiomes and, and in humans, right, and how they're linked to, to health and to disease. Um, and this, the same is really true for nearly all animals and, and all ecosystems. Um, the microbiome, which is a, a community of many different types of bacteria and fungi, um, it, it consists of, of microbes. We focus on um, the really enormous number of beneficial microbes that are on the corals. Um, and we know that in corals in particular, microbes that live on them and in them 
are responsible for helping out with nutrient cycling. They handle waste. Um, they uh, can protect, provide immunity, as Amy said, and protect the, the corals against uh, pathogens that potentially are in the water column. Um, so they're really, really critical for supporting the health of the animal host of the corals. You've been listening to Cody Sharp, Amy April, and Sean Grace with the Temporal Coral Research Group, and we'll be continuing this conversation after a break. Coral fans, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with members of the Temporal Coral Research Group, Sean Grace, Cody Sharp, and Amy April. And just a reminder for our listeners, if you're a coral fan, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Cody, I want to jump back at this with you. Um, we were lucky enough to intercept a collection process with you and some of your students. Can you describe that process for us? Sure. Well, we know that um, based on research that was done um, nearly 40 years ago, um, we know that astrangia produces gametes. So they produce eggs and sperm uh, that they release into the water into um, uh or, sorry, to um, meet each other in the seawater to fertilize and produce new uh, young corals. And this is the way that they sexually reproduce in the wild. We know based on research that was done about 40 years ago that the seasonality of this is that the eggs and sperm are released in late July, August, September. And so during this time of the year, um, we get together and we collect corals. Um, because those gametes are so small, we bring those corals back into the lab and we spawn them in the lab. So we've developed techniques um, over the past seven, eight years now um, with a large group of collaborators from multiple institutions that allow us to spawn these and get eggs and sperm in the laboratory and then fertilize them in the laboratory and raise them in captivity. Um, we we call this event that we've been working on uh, Spawn Fest, and because like like all uh, marine scientists, we like to to give things uh, snazzy names. And at Spawn Fest every year, we basically spend uh, a week or two really dedicated to focusing just on getting a lot of spawn in the lab and learning as much as we possibly can during this small window of time about the early life stages of this coral. Well, I think you're in the right place. We love a, a snazzy name as we're talking about Spawn <laughs> Fest as we debut Naughty Week here on Connecticut Public, where we celebrate all things nautical. So I think we're we're on the right same page here. <laughs> and I wanna I wanna ask too, you know, is the hope is the hope to confirm that these coral went dormant this year, and I'm, that's important, right? Well, I, th I think Sean's observations uh, this year about the coral uh, not reaching that dormancy are, you know, number one, unfortunately, not very surprising because, uh, like he said, we didn't hit those those lower temperatures and sustain at those lower temperatures that we usually do, uh, those those low temperatures that trigger the dormancy in the coral. Um, the the goal of SpawnFest is not so much, um, it, we didn't initiate these um, these uh, work trips to 
monitor for uh, changes in the environment. To be totally honest, we did this because we're working on trying to um, develop this as a useful experimental animal for people, uh, researchers in all kinds of different fields um, to learn as much as we can about fundamental coral biology. So like so many different research topics these days, um, we accidentally uh, have found another way to, to monitor, to a very sensitive way to detect for, um, for changes in our local animals. And so um, as we continue to follow the spawning rhythms and, um, and reproductive output of corals um, in, this, in the face of climate change, um, that may provide us a window into um, how the corals are changing, how animals in our ecosystems are changing. But it, it wasn't, um, I would say, the, the original intent for starting monitoring this. And Cody, this is part of what makes Northern Star Coral such ideal candidates for study that we can spawn enough to prove something like this? Yes. <clears throat> so the spawning techniques that we use to study Estrangia and its early life stages um, are all modified and adapted um, from methods that originally were um, developed for studying spawning and reproduction in tropical corals. Um, the methods that have been so finely tuned now by, by tropical coral researchers um, and have been used um, for uh, in land-based nurseries and, and restoration efforts um, around the globe. Um, we've modified those for Estrangia um, and, and we're hoping to be able to use those um, to, to answer some really fundamental questions about um, Estrangia's biology. And Sean, you know, you have shared with us a little bit about the process earlier and, and your philosophy behind this study. How does what Cody just mentioned now, you know, reflect on what you've observed? Well, I'm really excited about what Cody's what Cody's studying and when Spawn Fest happens every year, especially what she what the data is going to demonstrate this year. Um, just because it'll be the first time that we'll have a spawning event after a year when the coral didn't quiesce or go dormant. And to me, it, you know, even though it's like a, you know, the first bit of data, it, it, it could represent like the small changes that, that Bill mentioned earlier, right? So these small little changes that happen every single year that over years, maybe 10 years from now, we see a big change taking place. So, you know, for me, Cody's research is very exciting because it's it's just going to be data points, you know, after the first time that we didn't notice dormancy in this coral. So I'm very excited by that. And Amy, what else would you add to everything that we were just talking about now? Yeah, in addition to, you know, temperature, which we've been when you're talking about with this coral, I mean, I think it's important to understand that, you know, these corals are also in a, an ecosystem that's changing these northern sea star corals as well as the tropical corals. But, you know, as Bill talked about, there might be other things like we, you know, we think it's temperature that's directly related to the hypoxia, um, or sorry, to the warming, but you know, we know that hypoxia is occurring more and more in some of these regions of the, the ocean. So that will be important for us to, to monitor and, and to understand. Um, I'm, I'm also very interested in what the warming is doing to the seawater microbes as well. This is something people aren't really talking about yet, but temperature is a major growth factor for bacteria. 
Um, and so it will cause some bacteria to grow faster and will cause some of them to express genes that um, may actually be harmful in some cases. Um, it can make bacteria turn into pathogens. Um, and so, it, you know, as these corals are in a warming ocean, there's other um, what we call synergistic impacts, so other impacts that, that are probably um, acting on their biology. And so this is one of the reasons it's so important to and to, to have a system like Astrangia where we can bring it into the lab, uh, we can spawn it like Cody is doing, we can produce more corals, and we can do experiments to understand what's happening. And what we use, you know, systems like Astrangia to do is, is to um, make uh, relationships and, and wider statements about what's likely happening in the biology of, of other species and other, including corals and beyond, because you can't bring every organism into the lab and, and do these, these tests um, appropriately. But, um, but we're starting to be able to do that with Astrangia, and that's really exciting. And Sean, with what Amy is saying, you know, even resilient northern star coral may be dealing with its own impacts of climate change beyond even dormancy. You know, do you know what sort of impacts you're seeing already or are you seeing those impacts? Well, I, I know I mentioned the, that we, we're seeing a lot of turf algae now in the shallow areas and it's kind of expanding into, you know, typical coral areas, right? So, you know, on the horizontal substrates and vertical substrates. And, you know, we know that, you know, marine heat waves have caused this decrease in kelp, this increase in turf. And with this turf, it's just smothering a lot of corals. Um, I have a student right now examining that at Fort Weatherall in, in, in Rhode Island and, yeah, it's amazing how many dead skeletons we're finding underneath the turf. Whereas just immediately adjacent areas that no turf's present, you know, the corals seem to be just fine there. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, a result of, you know, marine heat waves and you know, what's happening to the substrates underwater. And again, for our listeners, you can find images of that collection process uh, on that turf on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And Cody, we the Northern Star Corals forms in relatively small colonies, and they're not reef building. Can you tell us why is that? Uh, well, we think that it is um, probably linked to these seasonal fluctuations. So um, we uh, researchers over the years have seen um, a lot of growth in the warmer summer months. And then um, during those colder months, and especially during dormancy, um, there's little to no growth. And so um, they never really reach those, um, those large reef building uh, sizes that we see uh, down in, in tropical reefs. They do secrete skeletons. They deposit these hard rock skeletons, just like uh, the reef building corals down in the tropics. Um, but they remain um, anywhere from about silver dollar size to uh, maybe like a small uh, coffee cup saucer um, in size. So they're, they're not the huge corals that, that one might picture in the tropics. And Sean, what would you add to that? You know, what are some other distinctive features that we may not think about when we're thinking about these corals? Oh, just how variable the their colors are. I, you know, I think for years we've been talking about this coral as being like brown with zooxanthellae or white without zooxanthellae. And, and that's a little concerning because even though they're white, they may have zooxanthellae. It's just not perceivable by us that we, you know, we can't really see the amount that they have. Um, but they can actively photosynthesize even though they they look white. 
So I think that it's that dynamic symbiosis that deserves more study. I think it'd be really interesting to see that. I mean, when I'm diving, I see all different shades and colors and, you know, examples of corals with and without and some corals that have both. And yeah, it's just, it's amazing to observe. And of course, must ask about the very important work that you are all doing. Cody, can you tell us a little bit about the Temperate Coral Research Group? You know, when and why did you get this started? Yes. So um, I would say probably back in 2009, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Randy Rogen from Boston University, introduced me to this coral. Um, I, I first was, uh, when I was uh, when I when I met Randy and she talked to me about this coral, she she brought it to me because I was really interested in these questions about um, at the time what is the what, you know what are the factors that drive composition of microbiomes in corals what controls them in tropical corals and she said if I got the coral for you because I was interested in whether or not the presence of those algal symbionts could determine what kinds of microbes the coral has in it and on it and so here we have this naturally occurring. Um, almost experimental system where we have some that are, uh, as Sean was talking about, fairly white, some that are really brown, and then a lot that are in between. And so we can use the coral, and I was really excited to use the coral to, to sort of test this hypothesis that the corals with different levels of algae would have very different microbes in them. It actually turned out not to be true. Um, and uh, and then what we found was that the microbiomes on a stranger are much more seasonally dictated. But in the meantime, what I realized was that this coral was going to be useful to so many different people who study so many different fields of coral biology. Um, and Randy and Sean and I um, started this group um, a few years later in response to um, to people being interested when we talked about Estrangia at an international coral reef symposium meeting. Um, and uh, what started out as a group of just over a dozen people um, in 2016 has now become a group of about 100 and over 150 researchers from all over the country who are studying this coral with very specific questions. And many of them are focused on fundamental biology of Estrangia but a lot of them are also with the express purpose of applying what we learn and translating it back to uh, timely issues in tropical coral science. Well, I love it because I never thought I was going to be talking to a coral fandom here. So it's very exciting in of itself. And, and Amy, I want to ask, uh, why is this interstate collaboration so important? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I was actually just reflecting on this as Cody was was talking. I think what's so important is that the questions that we're asking are still primarily foundational biology and ecological questions, which, you know, even though there's probably thousands of people around the world studying corals, we still know very little about how they work and how they respond to stress and how they get their symbionts. And the work on Estrangia is really focused on those foundational questions. And what, I, what I'm seeing in tropical corals now, and which includes um, a, a group here at Woods Hole that I lead called Reef Solutions, is that they are in such dire straits that we're working on applied biology towards solutions. And, and we're trying our, our darndest to use, you know, foundational knowledge to, to develop these solutions. But 
and, and solutions are happening in, in many tropical reefs uh, labs worldwide. We're not the only ones doing this, but um, the challenge is we're developing solutions when we don't completely understand the system, right? Um, and, you know, this has been happening in human medicine for years and years, right? You just it, you just need to do something, right? You just can't let people die. And so you, you, you do um, experiments and trials and things like that to get as close as you can. And, you know, Estrangia is still doing really well here. And <laughs> I don't know if we're ever going to have a, an Estrangia restoration or rescue project um, ju just because their role in the ecosystem isn't as critical as um, as for tropical corals, um, the economic benefit just isn't quite there. And so it keeps us really focused on, you know, how these organisms work and we can take that knowledge and bring it back to the tropics. And, and so it's so incredible because there are so many universities and research institutions here in New England, as well as down the Atlantic seaboard that may not have ready access to tropical corals. And so we can use Estrangia to, to ask these questions and um, produce just incredibly valuable knowledge. And Sean, final question here. We got about a minute. We'd love to just ask, you know, what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation we're having today? Well, one, that, that Estrangia is the only coral in southern New England. It is their local coral, regardless where you live in this area. And uh, we should all embrace it and <laughs> And just enjoy it because I think just from this conversation with comments from Cody and Amy and Bill, um, it's not as strange as we think it is. Oh, oh I was <laughs> actually going to end it with don't be a stranger because we definitely want to have this conversation again. So thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Cody Sharp, Amy April and Sean Grace with the Temperate Coral Research Group. Thank you so much for such a punny time this morning. <laughs> thank you. I'm Thank Catherine. You, Catherine. I'm Catherine Shen. Tomorrow on Where We Live, we learn about the tenacious, carnivorous little turtle known as the Diamondback Terrapin. It's Naughty Week. Tune in to all of Connecticut Public's talk shows this week for nautical conversations. You can find out more at ctpublic.org/nautiweek. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.